Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Sam Fleming, our financial policy correspondent, Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent, and Martin Arnold, our banking editor. We'll be starting off with Ukraine, looking at the economic fallout from the Russian attack on the Crimea. Secondly, we'll be looking at RBS as Britain's biggest state-owned bank finally unveiled its restructuring plans. And finally, the vexed topic of bonuses as the Bank of England comes under pressure to crack down on this area. First, though, to the Ukraine, where over the weekend we obviously had the disturbing news of heightened tension between Russia and Ukraine centred on the southeastern region of Crimea. Sam, you've been looking at some of the economic fallout, particularly concerning, I suppose, in terms of the interest rate, the exchange rate developments and the stock market. But very early on Monday, there was surprise Russian central bank intervention. Yes, Central Bank in Russia has raised interest rates by 1.5% to 7%, its biggest hike since 1998. And the move was a response to precipitous declines in the ruble and also declines in the stock market, effectively trying to shore up confidence in the currency in the face of threats from the West about possible sanctions, particularly hawkish comments from John Kerry on Sunday, referring to the possibility of freezing Russian assets and American businesses pulling back from Russia, clearly designed in some way to inflame investor concerns about what could happen because of this standoff. If that was what Mr. Kerry was trying to do, it's had the desired effect with the biggest fall in the stock market for five years, decline in the ruble to an all-time low against the dollar briefly, and then the central bank response as well. It's not entirely clear how protracted this decline in investor sentiment will be, because it seems unlikely that the West is going to rush through sanctions immediately, considerably less likely that any military response could occur. And so really, it's a question of whether investor sentiment holds, whether this move by the central bank props up confidence, or whether investors decide that this is a really serious problem for businesses. And there are a lot of Western businesses which are exposed to Russia. There are indeed. And there are a lot of Russian businesses, not least the banks that are exposed to Ukraine. And Martin, you were looking specifically at that area over the weekend. Who's most at risk, shall we say, in terms of the financial players in Ukraine? Well, for me, there are two elements to this. One is those directly exposed to the Ukrainian market, but there's also the knock-on effects on Russia. And as Sam has just been laying out, the macro situation for the Russian stock market, the economy, and just the stability of the country don't look great at the moment. But first of all, dealing with Ukraine, it's really not a great time to be trying to sell a Ukrainian bank. But that is the position that Raiffeisen, the Austrian bank, finds itself in. They've been, for the past few months, trying to sell their bank in Ukraine, Bank Aval, which is, I think, the fourth largest bank 
in the Ukraine. It's got 800-odd branches, more than 3 million customers. And they say, at the end of last week, they were still saying that they had three or four bidders who were doing due diligence and they were pressing ahead with this. But you look at their share price this morning, the market clearly thinks that they are exposed to some pretty serious risks. Raiffeisen shares are falling sharply. They're down more than 10% at the moment. They are only the latest Western bank to decide that, for whatever reason, they didn't want to be in Ukraine anymore. There were a whole host of Western banks in Ukraine, many of whom have pulled out. Comets Bank sold out of the market a few years ago. Austria's Esther Bank also sold out. Sweden's Fedbank sold out, all at a loss and all to local Ukrainian investors. Those that are left in, apart from Raiffeisen, you've got BNP Paribas, which has got a fairly large bank in the Ukraine, although it's tiny for their overall group. The two Russian groups, VTB and Sparebank, which have seen their shares fall very heavily today. And finally, you've got Unicredit, which is also exposed. But the bigger risk, I think, for some of these groups is the knock-on effect on Russia, particularly for VTB and Sparebank, because you've got to fear sanctions or disruption to the economy, what happens with the gas supply to Europe, which is a huge factor for the Russian economy. That all flows through Ukraine. You've also got being hit today in the markets Societe Generale, which doesn't have any, well, hardly any banking business in the Ukraine, but does have a large Rosbank, a large bank in Russia. So questions more widely about any bank exposed to Russia as well as to the Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Sam? And just one other point on the Russian banks, particularly Sverbank, BTB, as Martin mentioned, there's got to be a question mark about their activities in other parts of Eastern Europe if this whole situation escalates, whether they've come under political pressure to withdraw services or slow down lending, for instance, in the Baltics, which are obviously incredibly politically sensitive in this area as well. Yeah, absolutely. Just on that, they're both obviously still majority controlled by the Kremlin, VTB and Sparebank. We've seen in Ukraine that both of them have in the last couple of weeks stopped new lending except in a few exceptional circumstances to the biggest clients that they have. And they've also limited withdrawals from ATMs. But a lot of other banks have taken similar measures. But both of those banks are particularly interesting given their majority shareholders, the Kremlin. And you suspect that any strategic thinking in the Kremlin will be reflected in the way that they behave in Ukraine and other markets. Well, we'll be watching developments there over the coming days and weeks, no doubt. We should move on to our second topic, which is the maybe slightly more parochial discussion around the future of Royal Bank of Scotland, which is becoming an ever more parochial bank, actually, following its restructuring announcement last week, retrenchment back from a lot of the foreign investment banking operations in particular to the UK. Give us a summary, Martin. Yeah, so the latest news to come out of RBS, which is still 81% owned by the taxpayer is an interview given by the chief executive Ross McEwen over the weekend to the Sunday Telegraph saying that he wanted to get the assets in RBS Securities Inc which is their US investment bank below 50 billion dollars so that they would no longer meet the threshold for a new set of regulations that have come into effect or are coming into effect in the US which are foreign bank holding company requirements so essentially any banks that have got 
assets of more than 50 billion have got a framework of rather onerous requirements to set up a holding company for those activities in the US with its own board, with its own capital, crucially, and respecting a leverage ratio requirement, which requires extra capital to be put into that subsidiary. So it traps capital in that subsidiary. OBS does not want to be hit by that. It says this would be trapping capital in an area that would not provide sufficient returns for its shareholders. So it wants to get below 50%. It'd still be hit by some rules in the US because there is a lower threshold of $10 billion. But to achieve this, RBS has got to more than half the size of its US investment bank, which is built around the Greenwich securities business that it bought a decade ago. And this business is essentially an asset-backed securities business, mainly mortgage-backed securities that it trades. It's quite profitable for RBS, but what I think they're going to do, as well as reducing the amount of activity and winding down some of the activity, they're also going to be doing, as other banks are doing, shifting where they can business offshore out of the US and doing it through maybe their London branch, for instance. Daniel, how important has that US franchise been for RBS's investment bank up to now? Because as Martin says, it's been fairly big, but it's obviously out of kilter with the politically motivated ambitions that the new RBS might have to come into line with a more British focus. I would say even the strategy they had before they changed it a week or two ago, it isn't really a business that fits well into the overall investment bank in that it's a mostly US-based business buying and selling ABS products from the US mortgage market to international investors, even outside the US. But you can't really say that it's necessary for their corporate bank or for some of the other businesses they have in the investment bank. So I wouldn't really say that it's necessary for them to keep in any way or that it has been, apart from the fact that it has been quite profitable recently, there has been any reason strategically why they should keep it. And also, It has been profitable recently, but it has always been quite a risky business for them. And it obviously was involved big time in the mortgage market in the run-up to the financial crisis and was was responsible for some of the losses that RBS made. So that volatility combined with the new regulatory burden obviously made Ross McEwen think that now was the time to diminish it substantially. Are there any other key takeaways from last week's announcement from Ross McEwen about the new shape of RBS? Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, his background is retail banking. He's been brought in to replace Stephen Hester. He had a five-year plan. He was brought in when the financial crisis struck and the bank was bailed out by the government. He had a five-year plan to turn it around without giving up on RBS's ambitions to be a global universal bank. In other words, in investment banking and retail banking around the world. And Stephen Hester resisted political pressure to shrink back to the UK domestic market. But his five-year plan did didn't work for whatever reason. He was kicked out. Ross McEwen was brought in. Retail banker by background, much more amenable to recenter the bank on its retail and corporate lending in the UK to UK customers. So that requires a huge restructuring of the bank and a shrinkage of it. And when you look at the numbers, it's just extraordinary the amount that this bank has already shrunk. Mm. And as we were just saying, just with their US investment banking, they're going to halve it again. So there is a lot more restructuring 
restructuring to done. They're going from seven business units down to three. So that's an awful lot of hard restructuring, reshaping of the business. He's also got a lot on his plate in terms of regulatory investigations and accusations of mis-selling both payment protection insurance and interest rate swaps, but also of mistreating small business customers in the UK. And he wants to make the small business market a key focus in the UK for this bank. So reputationally, he's got a lot of repairing of the damage to do. Now, I think his performance on Thursday when they presented annual results was pretty good, given all of that baggage that he's got. And he came out with some eye-catching announcements, particularly wants to get rid of teaser rates, which are these short-term attractive rates to lure in depositors and credit card customers to the bank, which only last six months and then they're hooked. He said that this is not fair on the existing customers. So he's proposing to take an ethical stance in the retail banking market where I think he's most comfortable, but where he's not comfortable and where his main shareholder, the government, is not comfortable is on these foreign adventures and the casino banking style investment bank adventures that they've built up over the years and they are very much out of favour and he's winding those down. Now, it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't have a section on bonuses and Sam, you had a very interesting story in Monday's paper where you were reporting the latest pressure on the UK regulator to change the approach to bonuses. This is a plea from Andrew Tyree, who's the head of the Parliamentary Commission. Well, he was head of the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards, the former group, but he remains head of the Treasury Select Committee. A very influential man, Andrew Tyree, told you that he wanted a new crackdown on bonuses, basically picking up one of the key recommendations from that parliamentary commission. He's been watching the bonus round and the bonus plans being unveiled over the past few weeks and clearly isn't happy with the direction the industry is taking. He calls it a new consensus on bonuses and he says a new consensus is not in line with what the parliamentary commission looked for on two major fronts. First of all, a deferral of bonuses is not long enough. The trend seems to be towards three years, five years. In some cases, the parliamentary commission was looking for 10-year deferral Interestingly, Andrew Bailey, the head of the PRA last year in an interview with the Mirror newspaper, espoused a 10-year deferral. So it could be quite interesting to see whether the PRA falls in line with what Andrew Tyree is calling for now or reiterating the call for now in terms of 10-year deferral. The other area is more controversial, I suspect, with the PRA, which is the idea that instead of paying bonuses largely in shares rather than cash, they should be paid in bail-in bonds, effectively bonds which can be wiped out or converted into equity if a certain and capital trigger is breached on the downside by a bank when it gets into serious trouble. Mr Tyree is very keen on this idea, as was the Parliamentary Commission. Interesting to see whether the PRA is quite so keen. Certainly shareholders have rather mixed views about them, not least because, in fact, it's likely that if a bank is in trouble, the equity will be wiped out quite quickly. So the shareholders carry the loss before potentially the holders of these bonds carried a loss. And they would say, is that really a fair way to do it, given it's supposed to be the bankers who are taking the pain for their poor decisions? Now, Daniel, Mr Tyree is making this plea to the Bank of England, but what do you think the banks are likely to do without pressure from the regulator? As Sam was saying, this bonus round shows that there has been relatively little change in some areas in terms of the length of deferral, for example. But do you think there's any signs of them changing their spots without pressure? I think we haven't seen much of that in the UK this year round, apart from HSBC, which has always been very progressive and much stricter in terms of its bonus payments. But if I look at RBS and Barclays, they've all got 
three-year deferral still, despite the fact that the CRD3 rules, which are the ones that have been around for a few years now, the European rules, they say you should have a three- to five-year deferral. Basically, they are on the lower limit of what they need to do and have been for a while. And that's in line with what the US banks are doing as well. Really, virtually all of them have three-year deferrals. But if I look at continental Europe, there's been more of that happening already. For example, UBS having introduced a five-year deferral for the most senior staff. Similar, Deutsche Bank, which did a five-year deferral for the top staff. So there is some movement, but we haven't seen, particularly if I look at the banks that Mr. Tyre targeted, with his words, particularly Barclays and RBS, we haven't seen much of that yet happening. Well, maybe next year. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Sam, Daniel and Martin for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.